Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. On this Monday night, we look into the curative effects of friendship and how important it can be for our mental and physical health. A new movie called Cocaine Bear topped the box office this past weekend. It is very loosely based on a true story and features a drug-fueled rampage by a 500-pound black bear. But fiction aside, animals of all sizes and stripes enjoy a little intoxication. We'll pour over that one. The federal government is banning TikTok on all government-issued devices due to privacy and security concerns with the very popular short video app owned by China-based ByteDance. We look into the decision and what message it sends to the rest of us. But first, calls continue for the Prime Minister to hold a public inquiry into allegations of interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections by China. Is it necessary? Who wants it? What could it reveal? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh today called on the Prime Minister to hold a public inquiry into alleged Chinese election interference. He joined several high-profile officials making the same ask of late that all comes as there have been revelations uh, and reports both in on Global News and the Global Mail and so forth uh, about the 2021 and 2019 elections. Uh, he's calling for a thorough, transparent and independent investigation. Again, uh, a number of revelations about warnings that China was interfering in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections. So far, the prime minister has resisted those calls. And today, Justin Trudeau denied a new report, one that came out over the weekend or late Friday, saying that his office had been warned by Canada's spy agency, CSIS, to drop a specific Liberal candidate in the 2021 election, who is now a member of Parliament because he had Beijing support. Here's how the story worked. The Chinese government allegedly preferred Handong, a Chinese-Canadian, over another Chinese-Canadian Liberal who was passed over in favour of Han, uh, said Global, citing anonymous security sources in a story posted on the Global News website. Well, Trudeau is rejecting those reports he's, uh, that Canada's spy agency would dictate who can or cannot run for election in this country. And he says media reports suggesting that happened with Liberal MP Handong's nomination contest in 2019 are false. I want to make everyone understand fully that Han Dong is an outstanding member of our team and suggestions that he is uh, somehow not loyal to Canada should not be entertained. I'm not sure if anyone was suggesting he's not loyal to Canada. They were simply suggesting, I think, in these reports that perhaps, uh, you know, there were efforts underway to get him the nomination over somebody else. To deal with this entire issue, someone who knows it inside out, Jonathan Manthorpe, was a longtime foreign correspondent. He's the author of several books, including 2019's Claws of the Panda, Beijing's Campaign of Influence and Intimidation in Canada. And he joins us now. Jonathan, thank you. My pleasure. How are you? I'm well. I mean, this this one must all seem awfully familiar to you, because I remember reading your book and almost everything we're talking about, other than perhaps some of the, you know, so the specifics, yeah. almost everything that's being talked about, you talked about. That's right. I mean, you know, this is not a news story, um, which is, you know, perhaps the most critical thing one can say about it. We have known about this stuff for years and years and years. The first report I know that uh, of that, uh, look, and I'm a humble reporter, the first report that I know of that that, uh, CSIS did on uh, infiltration in Canada and pressure by particularly the United Front, which is uh, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, political warfare operation was in just after the handover of Hong Kong in 1997. 
Then in the early 2000s, we had uh, the Sidewinder report, which went into even more detail. And then uh, later on, we've had CSIS agents going around to schools and universities and saying, look, don't do these deals with Beijing, whereby you get uh, Chinese-paid Confucius Institutes, because these are nothing but, uh, but espionage outposts. And then we've had um, several reports uh, in advance of elections of uh, CSIS warning that, um, uh, that, that uh, there can be interference. Um, so, you know, you know, the detail is good to, to, to know, but we've known this stuff for decades. Uh, and um, my view is that at this stage, we know everything we need to know. The, the time is now for action. I mean, I think we need... Uh, the CSIS and uh, the uh, the Mounties, uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, to identify agents of the Ministry of State Security, which is uh, the Communist Party's uh, main spy agency, uh, and the United Front, which, as I said, is its political warfare operation, and to expel some of them, and expel a lot of them if need be. Um, uh, and and if there are uh, Canadians who have been uh, doing illegal things in, in terms of financing elections and so on and so forth, they should be charged if we can get evidence for it. Um, and I think the other thing that we really need to do is to um, follow the example of Australia, the United States, Taiwan, and a few other countries who are, who are uh, targets of the uh, Chinese Communist Party. And we need to set up a, a strong registry of, um, of foreign um, political operators in this country. Now, um, you know, that's going to haul in a lot of people because it's not only China and the Chinese Communist Party that has political agents and political um, activities here in, in Canada. Uh, India does a great deal because India sees uh, Canada as a nest of, uh, of separatists, um, uh, other countries do. Sri Lanka does because they also see us as a harboring um, separatist. Uh, Iran does. Uh, Russia does. So, uh, and of course, the United States is probably the main uh, uh, supporter of political activities here in uh, in Canada, probably more than China. But we we need a strongly enforced register of um, of uh, foreign political activity here. What do you see going on behind the scenes here? Because it isn't all. It is odd that CSIS is now sharing this information, seemingly sharing this information with reporters. You, as you mentioned, they've been warning about this for a very long time. Do you get the sense that within the intelligence community, they're, they're simply fed up with inaction, and now they're putting yeah. basically putting pressure on the government to do something about it? I think you're right. I think there's an element of that. But I think one has to remember, I was, I was listening to the, the clip from the Prime Minister that you played, where, um, and I think there is an element that we must keep in, in, in mind here, that we don't really want our secret police making political decisions in this country. You know, that no. should be left to, to our elected political representatives. Now, um, uh, no, for example, I'm... I'm uh, I, I find it hard to believe that uh, uh, that CSIS gave a report to the prime minister saying you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't, or you should expel this this or that candidate. I think what CSIS would do would 
be they, they would set out the information they had and it would be up to the politicians to make the decisions. That's the way this thing works. Um, but I think it is quite clear that, um, that CSIS has got quite impatient because the evidence of uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party activity here has been overwhelming for many years and there has not been pushback. Now, you know, you mentioned my book. My book sets out how carefully the Chinese Communist Party has sought to recruit agents of influence in Canada, in politics, in business, and in academia, going back to the 1940s. So, you know, one understands uh, CSIS uh, exasperation here, but, um, but uh, you know, we need some action now. I don't think we need a, a, a another commission of inquiry. That's really just delay. We know what the problem is, and we need... Uh, we need the, the, the politicians to back the police and to back CSIS um, uh, getting at the, uh, the, the, bad, but the bad apples here. Jonathan Manthorpe is with us this half hour. He is the author of a book called Claws of the Panda, Beijing's Campaign of Influence and Intimidation in Canada back in 2019. Of course, uh, this, as he's talked about already, uh, Beijing's attempts to influence things in this country go way, way back, far beyond the past few weeks we've been reading a lot about it. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned this earlier, you, you think an inquiry would just be more delays, right? We'd find out much of what we already know. There wouldn't be much value to, to digging into this in that way. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we've lots of experience of these sort of inquiries. It sounds good, but they tend to, even with a, an independent judge or whatever, they tend to be a forum for political grandstanding and for delay. And we don't need that anymore. We know what the problem is. And I, I, I'd like to just interject something here, Ben, because I think it's really, really important. And that is that the big victims of this campaign by the Chinese Communist Party are Canadians of Chinese heritage. You know, they may have been here generations and generations, but, but the Chinese Communist Party regards them as targets and regards them as people who it wants to get under its thumb. We've already got a situation here in Canada where almost all the Chinese language media, the, um, the, uh, the TV stations, the radio stations, the, the print uh, newspapers, and the online news um, uh, uh, lines are under the control or under the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, they have, the Chinese Communist Party has made efforts to get control of a lot of the old associations and uh, cooperative organizations that we know of that uh, Chinese Canadians have had for, for often you know, up to 100 years or more here. And they've been very successful at doing that. And it is really, really Chinese Canadians who need our support and need, need help getting the Communist Party off their backs. Um, you know, the uh, uh, people who are uh, from the Chinese Canadian community who are active in politics, um, who are pro-democracy, who are pro-reform in China or in Hong Kong, um, they, they get uh, uh, threatened, they get harassed, they get their parents or their relatives in China kidnapped um, and held hostage uh, to make them shut up, to make them stop um, uh, uh, political activity. Um, and in my book, and, uh, and since then, there have been um, many, many rec carefully recorded and documented instances of the harassment of Canadians of Chinese heritage. Those are the people we really need to look after and to save, um, because the pressure on them is, is every day. Uh, when, I, when I went on the tour to, to publicize Claws of the Panda, I mean, they were, uh, when I had audiences with, with uh, 
several or many Canadians of Chinese heritage in there. They Right across the country, they said the same thing. They said, Jonathan, when you're traveling across the country, would you please try and get um, mainstream Canada to understand the daily pressure we are under from the agents of the Chinese Communist Party? And I think that's true. And I think that those are the people we really need to try to look after in this. And sometimes that gets lost quite quickly in the politicization. The, I'm afraid the, uh, so. You know, yeah, we're, we're seeing it already. I mean, let's be frank. I, I don't think that anything, I, I don't think this is just a personal opinion that anything that mm. uh, the Chinese government may have been up to in 2021 or 2019 swung the election one way or another. Uh, but it would be it would be nice to know that the next time we have an election that these issues are on the table and that we're all very alive to the fact that within certain communities, the pressure, and not just the Chinese community, but the pressure is on. That's right. And, you know, and this is what we need to be concerned about. And, you know, the the Chinese Communist Party thinks long term. They they started this infiltration into Canadian um, business, politics and academia back in China in the 1930s and 40s when they came across Canadian missionaries and Canadian uh, diplomats uh, who... For one reason or another, largely because they 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 uh, they didn't like the ruling uh, Kuomintang government, one reason or another were sympathetic towards the communists of Mao Zedong. Uh, they thought that they were just going to be sort of reformists and reform uh, agriculture and so on and so forth. Um, and these missionaries and uh, diplomats came back to Canada in the, the end of the war, um, and many of them took up uh, senior positions and influential positions in various government departments. And so, you know, that's when the infiltration started, and that's when this sort of blithe, benign view of the Chinese Communist Party got embedded in Canadian uh, can- the Canadian establishment. Um, and the the Chinese Communist Party was equally diligent in infiltrating into Canadian universities because they wanted access to technology. They wanted to um, try and recruit uh, recruit uh, uh, professors and so forth, and the same in business. Very early on after recognition, in fact, before that, I mean, this goes back to the John Diefenbaker government, which in 1960 started selling wheat and other grains to uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. That's when the sort of business infiltration began, uh, and um, we've been uh, we've been naive about uh, the sort of people we're dealing with. Now, you know, the Huawei affair, um, when uh, the uh, the head of the Huawei uh, or the chief financial officer of Huawei Technologies was detained here, uh, and the immediate response of the Chinese Communist Party was to take hostages, was to to uh, kidnap the two Michaels and hold them ransom. That should have told everyone what you know, most, many of us have known for a long time, that um, we are dealing with a regime that does not share our values in any way, shape, or form. And we cannot have a, a normal relationship with, with Beijing while it is uh, controlled by this party. You can't deal normally with people whose first instinct when there's a problem is to take hostages. You can't. Jonathan Madthorpe, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, yes, this is a long, a long-term issue. It will not be solved overnight either. Thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Esme Fuller-Thompson is director of the Institute for Life Course and Aging at the University of Toronto. She's also a professor of social work. She's an expert on this whole topic of friendship and why it's so good for you. And she joins us now. Thanks for your time tonight.
Thanks so much for having me, Ben. I think we know, we innately know that friendship is good for us. It makes you feel good about stuff, right? Uh, but you've looked into this in a bit more, uh, with a bit more aplomb, so to speak. How important are friendships to us when it comes to our mental and physical health? They're absolutely essential. And I think we've put too much emphasis on our work and our work success and the amount of time we spend there without realizing our overall well-being, mental and physical, is really driven by our social connections. Social connections are sometimes tough to maintain. I think part of the reason we talk about this is that, you know, children have lots of friends, teens still have lots of friends, you probably have lots of friends as you're younger. Many people start to lose their friends as they get older. And that that is something that you've looked into. Well, I'm really interested in older adults. And sometimes they've lost their friends because their life partner and their friends have passed away or developed dementia later in life. Uh, and the reality is that having friends is good for you in so many different ways. It's sort of the secret sauce of aging well, is having uh, close people that you can confide in, certainly that they can help you if you, if you need support, you someone to bring you chicken soup, those types of things. But just someone who loves you and someone who hugs you and someone who cares about you and someone that you can pick up the phone and tell about what happened in the day. If you don't have that, that is very, very difficult. And with COVID, I think our social skills have atrophied a little bit. We haven't had enough practice. And so some people are coming out of COVID realizing, oh my goodness, I'm pretty isolated and that's not good. It takes effort though, doesn't it? I mean, you have to be willing to put yourself out there to maintain those connections often. Well, you know, with our kids, we'll always arrange play dates, but I have four young children. And by the time I'd organized all their play dates, this is quite a few years ago when they were little, I realized, wait a second, I don't have play dates. Uh, my definition of play dates is book clubs. So I started to put book clubs in my life. But uh, it makes sense that we realize our children need to socialize and we wouldn't dream of not having them connecting with their friends. But why will we ignore that important part of our own life? What does friendship bring that, say, marriage doesn't or having a partner doesn't, you know, having a long-term romantic partner? What does friendship bring to you that 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 other form of relationship does it always? Well, two things, I think. One is it makes your you less dependent on the marriage for all things. You know, a wonderful marriage is good for your health and well-being and uh, mental health, but you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. So having friends that you can do different activities with, that you can socialize with, those are pretty important touchstones in your life. And friends, old and new, make a big difference that way. When you say that during the pandemic, I mean, I think we were all fully aware of this, fully cognizant of the fact that some of our social skills atrophied a bit. On the other hand, because we had time on our hands, I found, in my case, I reached out to more people that I hadn't spoken to in a long time because we were all kind of living under the same under the same boat, right? Uh, there was a lot of posting, a lot of sharing on social media going on, but that doesn't quite sort of touching base on social media doesn't really make up for the the kind of connection that you were describing. <laughs> So it depends a little bit how you did it, I think. Uh, so a Zoom call with friends can feel almost as good as sitting with popcorn uh, uh, around the dinner table or around, you know, around the couch. But I think a, a little heart 
or a thumbs up on social media doesn't give you quite the same sense of back and forth connection. So it depends a little bit. Picking up the phone is is a really good thing to do. And I think sometimes we forget or feel that we have social connections because we just texted someone a line or two. I think the research is pretty clear that more intense conversations, sharing of emotions, and the back and forth that you can have in a conversation, whether on Zoom or or in person uh, really helps with just grounding uh, people. You need a conversation every day that's of quality time, ideally with a friend or even a new acquaintance. They, you, you need to make social connections. We're very social beings. Yeah, you've pointed out that it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle as well if you don't. Well, I was just thinking about this, you know, in the 70s when I was a kid, there was nothing on television. You know, three, I remember three those company, days. <laughs> yeah. Laverne and Shirley, this is not enough to keep you away from your friends because it no. was trash television. But nowadays, if you're feeling low energy and you don't have a social circle, you can sit and binge watch the world and everything that's ever been offered. So I think you have this false sense that you have a full life, but really friendships are what makes life much more three-dimensional. And that's somebody to talk to. And if you don't have a crisis, maybe you're doing okay. But typically when the chips are down, we want friends to turn to, friends to support, friends to give us advice. And we want to be there for others. There's a lot of that back and forth, just being able to help others is really good for our well-being as well. Esme Fuller-Thompson is Director of the Institute for Life Course and Aging at the University of Toronto and a Professor of Social Work as well. We're talking about the importance of friendships uh, this half hour. I was mentioning that a good friend of mine came to Vancouver over the weekend. We see each other as much as we can. We didn't see each other over the pandemic, but we try to see each other once a year otherwise. And it just so happened with all that's going on with flight delays and so on, we decided we'd do it closer to one person's home. And there was no point in going to you know anywhere near Montreal in the middle of the winter so out to Vancouver. And it was just great. It's great to see an old friend, right? You share so much in common and you can talk about things uh, that you don't often talk about. Um, when, as we, when you look at, at what it, the benefits, I mean, one of the things that I was not perhaps surprised by, but certainly impressed with when you, in your research or what, how you've talked about it is the, is the physical benefits of friendship that people who are suffering through health in sort of poor health, that having friends uh, is a big determinant of how much, how quickly you get and get better, for instance. So there's a whole bunch of research, not just, not done by me, but by the whole sort of world of senior researchers and older adults. And they're suggesting that being socially isolated for a prolonged period of time, that means not having friends to contact, even if it's on Zoom, that that would count as being having friends. But prolonged social isolation is as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It really undermines your physical well-being. And not surprisingly, there's there's mountains of evidence about depression and anxiety uh, being much, much higher in people who are isolated. Sometimes when you're low energy, or depressed or or not feeling well, it feels like too much of an effort to reach out. But that reaching out can actually be energizing and is certainly healthy. 
And you were mentioning too, just having lost, people have lost their touch a little bit. That's another thing about loneliness is it tends, again, I was mentioning that vicious cycle earlier, where when you're not feeling particularly up about yourself, you're you're also not as up around other people. And that can have a bit of a negative impact as well. You start to lose your friends uh, to some extent. Well, there there's that possibility of losing friends, but there's also the worry that you may be too worried to reach out and just even start a conversation about the weather with uh, somebody at the dog park or something like that. And those connections, when you ask people, will having an in-depth conversation with a stranger be a good thing or a bad thing? Most people think it'll be a horrible, scary, frightening thing. And then when they randomize them to do it in these experiments, people are like, oh, that was the highlight of my week. I met this lovely person. And our brains misinform us that speaking to a stranger is going to be scary and negative. But in most circumstances, people are happy to reach out and talk and discuss. And and the other piece is for those of us who are doing well, look around, watch out for the people who seem to be struggling because your phone call or dropping by and saying hi or, you know, bringing over a cup of tea or something like that could literally make the difference for the whole week for the, a person who's socially isolated, particularly an older adult in this co- time and context. Yeah. And, and when you when it comes to reaching out to old friends as well, sometimes, you know, there's been a lot of bridge under the, a lot of water under the bridge and time has passed, but there's no need, I would imagine, to go out and, and make a whole new set of friends. It's nice to talk to strangers, but you probably had friends throughout your life. You could probably reach out to them and say hello and see what happens. You don't need to go out and make a whole news. It's not starting from scratch every time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some people are like, oh, it's been 10 years. I feel like I can't do it. I guarantee you, you're not going to be worse off than you are now. So if you reach out to someone and they ghost you, well, you're exactly where you were before you started. But 90% of people will be like, oh, I, you know, Ben, I haven't seen you in years. What are you doing? Let's let's talk. And do you remember the time we did X in Mr. Ling's grade six science class? You know, those True. fun memories that you can't share with anyone else. How fun is that? Always the best, I would say. The um, Now that we've, we're sort of emerging from at least the social isolation of the pandemic, uh, how do you think we should move move on then? I mean, there there has been some lost connections, but it also feels like it's an opportunity. We sort of saw what we all got to witness was what a more isolated life, isolated life looked like. And I don't think many of us, I know some people who enjoyed it, but uh, most of us didn't. You know, we're blessed to be through it. I mean, not 100% through it, but... I think that sense of when we were being locked down before there was vaccines and we had the sense that everybody could potentially contaminate us, it's the opposite of wanting to be in community. So look at your neighbors. How are they doing? People really want to keep those connections up. And we're so fortunate. I mean, if this pandemic had happened 20 years ago before Zoom, oh, my goodness, what a disaster. Actually, some of my high school friends, we got together. Oh, oh, great. Zoomed around and watched, uh, you know, we'd watch things together. So the, we, there's resources that you can do, even if you're long distance from the people you love. Face-to-face meetings are fabulous, too. Yeah. Yeah. As we Fuller Thompson, thank you so much for your insight on this. Great. Thank you so much. The most popular movie at the box office this past weekend was A Strange Animal Story. It's called Cocaine Bear. You may have seen the previews somewhere bringing in nearly $30 million U.S. around the world. It is inspired, very loosely inspired, 
by a 1985 story of a drug runner's plane crash, some missing cocaine, and the 500-pound black bear that ate it. Um, it's all set in a forest, and of course, in the movie, uh, the it becomes a drug-fueled rampage by said black bear. Here's here's some of the trailer. Beth, we should go. Millions of dollars worth of cocaine fell from the sky this morning in Knoxville, Tennessee. There's more this out there. They dumped it somewhere. A lot of cocaine was lost. I need you to go and get it. The bear did cocaine. A bear did cocaine. Yeah, you get the point. But it got us thinking about um, animals in general. You know, animals... You know, they, they live in nature. Things ferment, right? They like to not necessarily find, you know, lost cocaine in a forest in Knoxville, but they do enjoy a little intoxication. And we thought, why don't we talk about that? Let's not talk about the movie. You can you can see the trailer. It pretty much explains itself. Uh, to help us with that is One Pagan. He's a biology professor and author of Drunk Flies and Stoned Dolphins. That is the most fascinating book title uh, I've heard in a long time. <laughs> Thanks for your time tonight. <laughs> Well, thank you. Uh, hi, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, I mean, the cocaine bear story, I guess, is it was was sort of. I mean, I I I'd never heard of it until the movie came out. Um, but aside of sort of those <laughs> stranger incidents, animals do like to get intoxicated. They beat us to the to it ages ago. Absolutely, millions of years before even even thought about doing that. And you would be surprised of the kind of animals that engage in such. Uh, behaviors, as it were. Yeah, you have some great examples in the book. Tell me about a few of them. Well, probably my favorite examples of the vertebrate type are Australian animals. Koalas, of all animals, can get intoxicated, and it's been well documented by Charles Darwin himself that the early white settlers in Australia, they kept koalas as pets, and they will seek to, for example, when they're master was drinking beer, they will beg for it, and they will steal their tobacco pipes and chew on the tobacco leaves, and they will essentially get high on that. Also, there's a much more, uh, much more modern documented story about wallabies, that they uh, raid uh, poppies uh, plant plantations, and they, well, ingest the poppy seeds and whatnot, and they get high. Okay, some other animals that engage in such behaviors are fruit flies, of all things. Right, did the drunk you know flies. That? The drunk flies, oh, yeah. right. Yeah. The drunk flies. Uh, did you know that when male fruit flies, uh, they are missing, let's say, female companionship. They uh, prefer fermented fruit as opposed to fresh fruit. So it, it's like they get her, their hearts broken, they they come drinking. They drown their sorrows. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like that. Do we have, um, I, mean, I, I mean, this is a broad question, but do we have a sense of why? I mean, why they do it? it it's it's probably, a, it's a, quali a qualified answer because we cannot get into the mind of animals. You, you know what? I don't even know what I'm thinking most of the time let alone try to get into the mind of an animal. But 
it's probably due to our shared evolutionary history. We shared a very similar nervous system with all the neurotransmitters and all the chemicals that, that make us react the way we do. And in all likelihood, we share these pathways that take advantage of the nutritional value of substances that happen to be psychoactive. What about the stone dolphins? Because that that one, I was reading about it earlier. Yeah. That one certainly <laughs> uh, captures the imagination. And dolphins are very smart, Absolutely. right? So, what, so how does that, tell me about them. Yeah, that's probably one of the most kind of frustrating parts of the book to write because I am kind of fastidious about documenting my sources, looking at the original work for experiments and things like that. But there's not a lot of research about stone dolphins. The thing about it is that some years ago, a documentary crew, they went underwater to film a pot of dolphins. And they observed that they were playing with a puffer fish, which happens to be a type of fish that secretes a very potent toxin. The thing is that they notice a very weird behavior in the dolphin pot. They will nibble on the fish, nibble on it, don't eat it, they didn't eat it. They nibbled on it and then passed it to the next dolphin and to the next dolphin and to wow. the next, you, you get the picture. I do, okay? yeah. Then, yeah, they, eat, they observe behaviors that for all intents and purposes look like intoxicated uh, dolphins. But wow. there's no, yeah, there's no, hard research uh, trying to, to test whether they are intoxicated by this particular uh, toxin. Right. So, uh, so uh, we can leave it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. We can leave it to our imaginations then about the, about the puff uh, uh, in the dolphin sense, but that's an interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What about, I mean, when you look at animals in, you know, when you look at different species in the animal kingdom, uh, I, I remember reading about elephants and so on. They must leave themselves a bit like humans, for that matter. They must leave themselves vulnerable to making some bad decisions in the, you know, in the predatory world of nature when they put themselves when they get intoxicated. Absolutely, uh, and that's kind of a uh, risk-benefit calculation on the part of an animal, because in many times, for example, when you ingest alcohol, it's a high-caloric chemical. That's why when you are on a diet, they tell you not to drink, uh, essentially. But then when you are in a nutritional state that it's, you're deprived in that sense, you have to make uh, the animal makes the calculation cost-benefit ratio. Do I get nourished but not so uh, nourished that I can get high, quote-unquote? So, uh, and it's undeniable that an intoxicated animal can be more, uh, less likely to survive. Uh, due to inhibitions and all these type of things. Yeah, it's, it's a highly fascinating uh, field of study, as it were. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising, right? I mean, it's not surprising that, you know, things that would exist in nature that would affect one's, um, one's psyche, so to speak, uh, are, are used, are discovered, right? But uh, what are some of the other examples? I mean, there are, there, there are, do animals prefer, um, you know, things like, do they prefer things that ferment or things that that in, in talk or booze or drugs is the is the is the way of putting it mildly? Yeah. yeah. So the current understanding is that many of these substances are produced by plants, right? We're talk, we can talk about nicotine. We can talk about cocaine, uh, uh, 
a more Poppy seeds. open yeah. and, and things mm-hmm. like that. So the main idea, uh, again, it's the hypothesis that uh, scientists propose, is that these substances evolved originally as pesticides to protect the plant against uh, eating uh, in, uh, insects that will uh, ingest the plant or feed on the plant. But the thing about it is that when we, are, when we see an organism like us, which is much bigger than an insect, the same amount of cocaine or nicotine that would kill a bug will get us psychoactive effects. Right. And that's due again to the shared uh, evolutionary history in, the terms, in terms of the development of the nervous system. And any other good example? I mean, one of the ones I'd always read about was elephants, right? I mean, I think that was probably the most oh, known yeah. one. Oh, yeah. So that that's one that it's uh, it's kind of an urban legend because they yeah. that has been kind of debunked uh, in a way. Uh, people observe that in certain parts of Africa, elephants fed uh, preferentially on the fermented uh, fruit of the marula tree. Okay? And they there's kind of legends or accounts that say, well, there are uh, drunk elephants that ravage uh, populations and whatnot. But some uh, scientists have made the calculation and an elephant would have to ingest like proverbially a ton of marula (laughs) fruit to to get intoxicated in that sense. So there could be elephants that could be especially sensitive to alcohol. It's like any of us. For example, I can tell you that I can get dizzy with just one beer, okay? But some right. people uh, will need more than one beer to get dizzy if you get my drift. And, and, and that's uh, probably also true of our animal cousins. Yeah, an elephant would, sounds like they would need to consume an awful lot of anything to feel anything. But, uh, Absolutely, you, yeah. You, would, you know, so that's, so that's, the, so that, that's an urban, that's a legend more than anything else, right? Because I think that's one yeah, that you that, think of right away, but probably... Do you think, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if, if the movie, I, are you planning to see Cocaine Bear? Do you have any interest in it? Well, actually, uh, I'm planning to. Uh, I'm planning to, it, it, if only for, um, not for research purposes, because the thing about it is that, of course, addiction is a very uh, sad phenomenon and it's a mm-hmm. big problem in society. But when we think of these activities in our animals, uh, fellow animals in the planet, is rather funny, and 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 that's something that uh, that catches uh, the imagination of many people, myself included. It certainly does. I mean, it may it may spark a little. I mean, much like it did with us when we were talking about it, it may spark a little more interested in fi- interest in finding out how animals, how the animal kingdom does in fact react to intoxicants. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The reason why I decided to, uh, for example, do the research in the book is that in my own research, I work with flat. You know, these kind of worms that you can cut their heads off and they will regrow Mm -hmm. a new head with the brain and whatever. I do pharmacological research with these uh, critters. And I've been doing that for almost 20 years now. And when I decided to engage in this crazy adventure of writing books and whatnot, I kind of drew on that and began thinking about what other animals can get sensitive to psychoactive drugs. 
We're reading one up here about elk. <clears throat> I was being told about today that uh, are sort of yeah that, that they also have something with with sort of something along the lines of of the active ingredient in a, in, the, in a magic mushroom, for instance, is something that they yes. that, that yep. they're into. Yeah, there's actually a very uh, charming legend uh, about that because the the mushroom that uh, this that psychoactive mushroom it's red and white. Okay. Right. And we're talking about reindeer. And we, we make that connection. We can connect that with Christmas. Okay? <laughs> so some people propose that the legend of, the charming legend of Santa Claus came from hallucinations of the native peoples of the Northern Hemisphere that got high on Amanita mushrooms. They would know that, they would know that uh, reindeer would eat on those and they can imagine uh, an, an old jolly guy uh, flying in a reindeer. <laughs> so it's it's as good a theory as any, I suppose. Do you, yes, if, if, I had so much fun researching this book that you I'm have sure. no idea. If, if you went back uh, just to how humans, I mean, humans, I mean, through evolution, how we developed our tastes for certain things, no doubt within the animal kingdom, we would watch each other, right? Yeah. So uh, in all likelihood, we learn about psychoactive uh, substances by looking and watching animals. Because in a real sense, the very first science that we practiced was behavioral neuroscience, okay? By observing the migration patterns of mammals, for example, okay, and other types of animals. So scientists think that most likely we observe, let's say, uh, in a reindeer or a, or a horse, okay, nibbling on particular substances that after, uh, induced certain behaviors on the animal. For example, uh, the legend of how we discovered coffee mm -hmm. is about a, a goat uh, herder in uh, Ethiopia thousands of years ago who had, uh, well, he uh, set his goats loose to, to graze. And then uh, he observed that they nibbled on a certain plant, and when they nibbled on the berries of that plant, the goats became very active, jumping around and whatnot. They tested those, and well, coffee, tea, and all these type of things came about. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of one of many hypotheses. Also, well, yep. been, the, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, no, go ahead. So, uh, there's also the idea of people under nutritional deprivation, that they will eat whatever they, they could uh, in their environment. And they, if they happen to uh, ingest something that is psychoactive, they will learn about that plant. And let's go, let's, go, uh, let's take it a step further. Let's suppose that in a very cold night, a very cold night, 50,000 years ago, people uh, wanted to make a fire and they needed kindling. And they gather some dry leaves and whatnot. And let's suppose that in those times, the only leaves that were available at the time were marijuana leaves. They kindled the fire. They huddled in the warmth. They uh, breathed uh, on those uh, fumes. And then again, they discover yet another psychoactive substance. Ore Pagan, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. And best wishes. Today, it may not come as a huge surprise. Perhaps TikTok to you is something 
that you use to watch funny videos of people dancing or pets or all kinds of sort of uh, time-wasting yet entertaining stuff, right? It is uh, pretty ingenious, the stuff that goes up there. But there have always been concerns about TikTok and data and privacy. Of course, its parent company is Chinese. Um, and now the Canadian government is banning the use of the popular short-form video application on all government-issued mobile devices. Treasury Board President Mona Forte announced that today. It takes effect tomorrow. Uh, so effective tomorrow, TikTok will, quote, be removed from government-issued mobile devices following a review of TikTok. The chief information officer of Canada determined that it presents a, quote, unacceptable level of risk to privacy and security, an unacceptable level of risk to privacy and security. Of course, this really is about its parent company called ByteDance. It has faced criticism for those who warned that China's government could access user data such as browsing history and location, uh, thanks to a Chinese law that requires private companies to cooperate with Beijing if and when asked. The Prime Minister addressed this uh, issue today in Mississauga. We take very seriously the freedom of expression, the freedom of Canadians to engage how they want online, but we also have very important principles around protection of data, protection of Canadian safety and security that we will always step up for. We're making the decision that uh, for government employees, for government equipment, it is better uh, to not have them access TikTok uh, because of the concerns uh, that people have in terms of safety. Uh, this may be a first step. It may be the only step we need to take. But every step of the way, we're going to be making sure uh, we're keeping Canadians safe. And late today, Pierre Poliev, who has more than 230,000 followers on his TikTok account, suspended his. In a statement, Poliev's spokesperson confirmed that the Conservative leader had suspended his account and other members of his caucus will do the same. Late today, the government of British Columbia also announced it is temporarily uh, suspending use of TikTok on government-issued devices. Now, these are just devices you get from your employer. It doesn't mean if you have a private device, as far as I know, as long as it's not linked to your office that you couldn't still use it for TikTok. The most followed member of Parliament, by the way, on TikTok is Jagmeet Singh. He has about 875,000 followers. It was still active last time I checked. I'll have to check again. Uh, the rise of TikTok in this country has been phenomenal. 26% of adults are now on TikTok, according to uh, an online survey taken last spring. That was up from 15% just a few years earlier. 76% of Canadian adults aged 18 to 24 have TikTok accounts. So what should we make of this? Is the government making the right decision? Why are they doing this exactly? What is the threat? And if the government says its employees shouldn't have TikTok on their company phones, their government phones, what about the rest of us? Should we be worried as well? Sarah Grimes is director of the Knowledge Media Design Institute and is an associate professor in the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto. Sarah, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. I get just your initial reaction to this announcement today uh, that TikTok will be banned from being used on devices belonging to federal government employees. Yeah, I mean, it's not completely surprising. I mean, this has already been going on in, in other jurisdictions, in um, certain factions of the U.S. government and EU government. And I think it's good that we're we're taking some precautions the, the quote that really stuck out to me was presents an unacceptable level of risk to privacy and security. Uh, why would that be? We already know from a couple of high profile events over the past, well, a couple of years, actually, but I'm thinking most recently in December when it was revealed that, you know, TikTok employees were using the phones, the app and the information that's gathered through the app 
to locate journalists and to try to track down where leaks were coming from. It's not that they're the only social media companies that have access to that type of data, but because we already know that there's been some mismanagement and mishandling of particularly sensitive data, which is like location data. I think it's on the radar. It's worrisome. The timing, of course, with everything that's going on in the world also adds to the urgency of really cracking down on this and and trying to figure out what's going on before just accepting that data will endlessly be collected by these apps behind the scenes without us really knowing what's going on and hoping for the best. So listeners know uh, the big concern here, of course, is TikTok's parent company, uh, which is Chinese, right? And of course, we can't ignore the the geopolitical circumstances with which TikTok is under the under the magnoscope right now, or under under the spotlight. Exactly, there's been a heightened, obviously, tension between Canada and China, the U.S. and China, the EU and China. The geopolitical climate right now is very tense full of a number of developments, the Chinese spy balloon, increased kind of animosity in statements that public officials and politicians and leaders of these countries are making about our dealings. It's obviously there's a linkage, but I think it's also part of like a larger kind of growing concern about the data that's being collected in all of these different ways. Yeah. I mean, TikTok, the concerns over TikTok are clearly beyond just the app itself. But what would the concerns be with TikTok specifically when it comes to, and you mentioned it earlier, but the way the data is being collected, and you mentioned the, the tracking of journalists and so on, but they must collect so much data. I mean, there's so many Canadians have TikTok accounts. What would the concern be for government employees, people handling sensitive information on their phone, if they happen to have a TikTok app as well? Yeah, I mean, there's the data that we know about, and there's the data that's kind of being collected behind the scenes, and also then what happens to that data being paired with other data about us and and so on. We know that TikTok collects massive amounts of data. It's not atypical in that respect. You know, Facebook also collects reams and reams of data about us, but our assumptions about what's going to happen to that data tend to stay in a in a safe place. We think, oh, it will be used to target advertisements to us, or it'll be used to decide what our feed is going to look like so that it's more compelling and we'll watch for longer. And like this is true. The data is being used for those purposes. But of course, there's all these other ways that our data can be used. It can be used to track where we are, how long we were there for, who we were with. The big thing with a lot of apps that are running in the background. And in the press release, it also talks about cybersecurity flaws and and loopholes and ways in to be able to collect and and capture data through these holes in the app. But the app itself can also do that to other apps and other things that are running on your phone. So we put a lot of faith in these things because we think of them as consumer products or as entertainment products. But the data itself is kind of increasingly everything about us. You know, you use your phone for emails, you use it for talking to people. There's a very sophisticated surveillance video and audio surveillance system built into most of them. And all of that data is kind of floating around and we trust that it's always going to be used for these purposes that we're okay with. But of course, we actually have no clue. And when you have something like TikTok associated with a company that's based in China, 
and the new rules that we know about in terms of sharing information with the Chinese government, it's not such a great leap to say, I'm concerned now about what's going to happen to this data within this particular climate. But I think we should kind of think about this across the board, like with, with all of these apps, what are they doing with the data? Who are they sharing it with? What are those people doing with it? And so on. So TikTok finds itself in the crosshairs, mainly because of its of who owns it, as opposed to exactly what TikTok is doing differently from every other app, uh, similar app that you may have on your phone. Yeah, it's not that TikTok is necessarily collecting that much more super sensitive data, although it could be, right? We, we don't know the extent of it. All of these apps are collecting some data and we don't always know how much and we don't always know for what purpose. And that's kind of like a larger concern and a larger problem that we really need to tackle. Sarah Grimes is director of the Knowledge Media Design Institute at the University of Toronto. We're talking about TikTok today. The federal government has announced that as of tomorrow, TikTok will no longer be allowed uh, to be on government-issued devices. These are the phones that that uh, government employees are given by their employer. And they'll also no longer allowed, be allowed to download it after this as well. What should this mean then if I'm just the average person like myself who has TikTok and watches, you know, the kinds of videos we associate TikTok with, which seem to be entirely harmless, right? Uh, how concerned should I be about having TikTok on my phone then if the government is saying we don't want our employees to have it? Yeah. I mean, how concerned should we be? We've let this whole industry emerge. It's so powerful. And you're right. There's all of these really important functions that social media serve in our lives. They're entertaining. They're ways of connecting with people we really do care about or meeting new people that we you know, have these great experiences with. There's so much good about it that it makes the trade-off seem fair, the trade-off being our data. And I don't think that many people who are in this field would call for like a halt to social media, although I have I have read those arguments. Mm-hmm. There's no real viable, economically viable way for them to to continue as a as a as a business model without infringing on privacy. And I think that that's that's pretty dramatic. You know, I think that there's ways that this whole genre, this technology could be reoriented for a privacy first perspective. But I don't think it's going to come from the industry. I think it needs to come from regulators. I think it needs to come from something that's more about citizens first, about people first and their rights first, as opposed to the bottom line. Do you have any hopes that these uh, inquiries from different privacy commissioners are going to be a joint nationwide inquiry into TikTok? Any hope that that may bring a sense of, of explanation into all this? Yeah. I mean, they usually are very thorough with these investigations. And, and because it's this big cooperative you know, joint initiative, there's a lot more potential for evidence to be gathered, for the research to really go really deep and, and to understand more fully what the processes are exactly that are happening with the app, with the data, you know, with the business models and, and with data being exchanged potentially to, to government as well. So I, I think that it will probably result in, in in a lot of information. Whether it will be enough to spur action, that's another set of questions. But I think that the current privacy commissioner of Canada, you know, it's a new person. He's got a lot of energy, just kind of focus and, and seems to be leading things in, in a really great direction. So it'll be really interesting to see how, you know, he goes about this. 
And bringing in these other commissioners, I think the impact will probably be greater. I can't wait to see what happens. Would you would you have have TikTok on your phone now? I mean, I think that's what everyone really kind of wants to know, right? Is it more is it more or less dangerous than the other ones? And should I get rid of it? Is that is is the bargain now not in our favor to such an extent that maybe we should think twice about using it? Although people love TikTok, right? Yeah, I also love TikTok. TikTok is really fun. It has a lot of cool dance moves and good music and. And it's also community building and, and a way of contributing and, and participating in conversations with, with other people, right? That you know, and, and new people that you're just meeting. But after all of these events and all of these incidents of TikTok really showing that they are behaving unethically behind the scenes, at least sometimes, and in these incredibly important ways, I think we can take a stand against continuing to use it. For a lot of these companies, a Canadian government statement investigation into privacy might not make that much of an impact on them. But because they rely so heavily on users to keep providing data and keep using and, and keep keep purchasing you know, things through, through their app, this is a place where an impact can really be felt immediately. Now, that's not to say I don't think that the investigation, if they do find that there's been a violation of, of our privacy, it's not that I think that that will have no impact, but I think that the impact that that will have will be paired in ByteDance's home offices with the risk that that poses for consumers you know, turning away and, and users turning it off because they now know from the privacy commissioners that that's something nefarious is afoot. It does come down to whether we're going to put up with it as consumers, and we, we really don't have to. Is there a way in the interim for people to better protect their privacy with these apps? There are settings in those apps that that allow for less data sharing. Uh, is that one way of, of mitigating against this a little bit? Yes, definitely. And you can find these guides online. Also, not letting things run in the background all the time, and also you know, kind of being aware that your phone does have recording devices on it. And we don't always know what the software that we've put on our phones is up to. And so, you know, kind of being mindful of where you put your phone and, and how how much you leave it on and, and so forth. These are all good practices. At the same time, because not all of these companies are being forthcoming and completely transparent about what their algorithms are doing, what their software is doing, in terms of the data collection, what their business practices are with the data collection. We're also trusting user interfaces that are made by the same people who might be violating our privacy secretly. It's a thing to be mindful of at, at the same time. The privacy settings on TikTok were made by TikTok. True enough. Sarah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me.